And I'm glad that you're here, and we've opened up this service to allow for some more room in order to keep uh, doing what we can do to uh, follow the leaders of our nation. If you would, turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Will you do that? And if you're first time with us, this is a time when we spend time in the Word of God. We've, everything really points to this time. We take uh, our morning to go through and spend time in prayer, uh, to spend time in worship by giving, to spend time in worship to music so we can get to the point where we are ready for uh, the Word. If you have little ones and up through grade six, if you'd like them to be part of uh, children's ministry downstairs, they can be dismissed at this time. Leaders are standing in the foyer waiting for them, and they will be downstairs. Uh, the, the places are well marked for you to find them when we're all done, or you can walk them down yourself. God's plan for a healthy church, study through the books of First and Second Corinthians, material possessions is our focus now as we get to chapters 8 and 9, the New Testament standard for giving. The last time we were together, uh, we finished up our look at 2 Corinthians 8, uh, 1 through 8, and we we're looking at the model for giving as it relates to care for those who have need. And as I look at that, uh, at that uh, cartoon behind me, I'm reminded that Caleb and Emily Childers now have this to take care of when they come to church now. They just had their, welcome their first one in uh, to their family t- uh, this week, so make sure you uh, give them, uh, send them some, uh, some encouragement as they go through those early weeks of a newborn at the house. And if you've done that, you know what that looks like, and so we all pray for them and for their, uh, for their endurance. So we've seen repeatedly as we've looked through this, uh, th- this time in the Word, and if you've been with us, you know this, this is the model for uh, all New Testament giving. Uh, but here it's a model for those as it relates to those who have, are taking care of those who have need. And we've seen repeatedly that the giving of material goods that God has loaned to us is the normal action of dedicated believers. And so we've looked at uh, chapter 8, verses 1 through 8. If you missed that, you can catch that up uh, on Spotify or you can find us on YouTube and you can watch those and you can get caught up there. But the first century believers in this area of Macedonia give us the example of, of the kind of giving Uh, the New Testament giving is supposed to look like, and Paul uses them as the example, and so we have uh, taken that as our task and looked at the uh, behavior of these folks and what they looked like and the kind of of things that were part of their life, and then we want to emulate that, and that's really the idea. So Paul uses their heart attitudes, and as he goes to Macedonia, he uses their heart attitudes as a teachable opportunity for the church in Corinth. And we saw that they model giving that is controlled by grace and not impacted by hardship and that is uh, filled with joy. We saw that it's a giving that's not hindered by a small income, that it's generous, that it's in proportion, it's sacrificial and voluntary and excited to be part of it. It's, um, uh, It's a giving where people worship. They used it as a part of their worship to the Lord. And we saw that they were faithful in other areas as well, and it wasn't prompted by legalism. So Paul didn't have to give a command uh, to make that happen. So I'd like you to look, if you would, as is our habit, as we look to some new sections. I want to read it first, allow the Holy Spirit to go to work. So look in your copy of God's Word. We're going to be in Second Corinthians chapter 8. I'm going to pick up in verse 1, and we're going to read through verse 24 with some comments in between. So look there, if you would. I'm going to be reading from the New American Standard. You can find that around you or just read in the, the copy of God's Word that you memorize and that you study each week, and I'll give you some verse cues. We'll stay together. So Paul says in verse 1, he says, Now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God which has been given in the churches of Macedonia. Verse 2. That in a great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. Verse 3. For I testify... That according to their ability, 
and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord, verse 4, begging us with much urging for the favor of participation in the support of the saints. Verse 5, in this, not as we had expected, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. Verse 6, so we urged Titus that as he had previously made a beginning, so he would also complete in you this gracious work as well. Verse 7, but just as you abound in everything, in faith and utterance and knowledge and in all earnestness and in the love we inspired in you, see that you abound in this gracious work also. Verse 8, I'm not speaking this as a command, but as proving through the earnestness of others the sincerity of your love also. And the 12 things we just mentioned, controlled by grace, not impacted by hardship, all those kind of things, those are really the heart. That's kind of how we, we put the handholds on this passage. That's the heart of New Testament giving. Paul just kind of picked out what was going on in their life. Uh, we saw that it is uh, New Testament free will giving is modeled here. It's not a formula. It's not a set amount. It's not a percentage. Paul says just follow the example of the Macedonian believers and show your love and give in that way. And I know that when we hear uh, those kinds of things, and, and I'm aware of this and can, and can sympathize with this, uh, we may struggle to find our footing because you may have been taught all along that it was some kind of percentage or a fixed amount or something, and now that I, you know, we look at this, we see it's, it's prompted out of love, and it's, it's, uh, they actually asked for an opportunity to give, and they looked for it as an opportunity, and, and it, was, it was not hindered by a small income, and they were not hindered by a hard, uh, hardship, and we see all of that, and we, and, and we see it's just prompted by love. It's kind of hard to find your footing. On the one hand, God's richly given us all things to enjoy, and on the other hand, God's instructed us to be spirit-controlled in our giving and sacrificial, and, and that we're to give out of love. And as you think about that, you know, grace-controlled living might not be a new concept to you, uh, but it could be uh, that listening to the prompting of the Holy Spirit and then following through, uh, governed by what you read in the Word of God, might be a new experience for some of you. Understanding that we're supposed to act out of what we understand from the Word of God. What does it say? What does it mean by what it says? And then how does that apply to me? And so, that might be a new experience. But if you're in the Word, Colossians 3.16, let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom. So if you're in the Word each day, then I would just say, start by doing the small things He's already made clear. And once He sees you're willing to respond, He'll make the next steps clear. Okay? So if you're struggling to find, you know, what, what do I do here? How do I give out of love? How do I, how am I, it can be grace-prompted giving. I'm just so used to being comfortable in just giving, and I don't have to do it out of love. I just do it out of duty, or I do it out of, because I, I've been taught to, or whatever. So my encouragement to you is just begin to change your thinking a little bit, and this is going to prove valuable in every part of your life, because you read the Word of God, it's going to tell you what to do, and then when He sees you respond... And everybody wants to know what the will of God is. And so when we go through passages that say, this is the will of God concerning you, and I just kind of point that out. Hey, everybody wants to know what the, word of God, the will of God is. There's one. Just start acting on that one. And so that's the proper response as you're in the word each day. To, when you see some commands, this is what you do. And that will help you then move into this type of giving that, model, that is modeled after the Macedonians, which Paul has given us as a snapshot of what it's supposed to look like. Now, look at verse 9, if you would. Uh, 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9. This is a new section for today. We're going to read all the way down to the end and then come back and pick up where we're going to look at today. Now, verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Verse 10. I give my opinion in this matter, for this is to your advantage, who were the first to begin a year ago, not only to do this, but also to desire to do it, verse 11. 
but now finish doing it also, so that just as there was the readiness to desire it, so there may also be the completion of it by your ability. Verse 12, for if the readiness is present, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. Verse 13, for this is not for the ease of others and for your affliction, but by way of equality. Verse 14, at this present time, your abundance being a supply for their need, so that their abundance also may become a supply for your need, that there may be equality. Verse 15, as it's written, he who gathered much did not have too much, and he who gathered little had no lack. Verse 16, but thanks be to God, who puts the same earnestness on your behalf in the heart of Titus. Verse 17, for he not only accepted our appeal, but being himself very earnest, he has gone to you of his own accord. Verse 18, we have sent him Along, uh, sent along with him the brother whose fame in the things of the gospel has spread through all the churches. Verse 19, and not only this, but he has also been appointed by the churches to travel with us in this gracious work, which is being administered by us for the glory of the Lord himself and to show our readiness. Verse 20, taking precaution so that no one will discredit us in our administration of this generous gift. Verse 21, for we have regard for what is honorable, not only in the sight of the Lord, but also in the sight of men. Verse 22, we have sent with them our brother, whom we've often tested and found diligent in many things, but now even more diligent because of his great confidence in you. Verse 23, as for Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker among you. As for our brethren, they are messengers of the churches, a glory to Christ. Verse 24, therefore openly before the churches, show them the proof of your love and of our reason for boasting about you. It's a story of a, a king, a very rich king, who lived in the midst of great wealth. King, however, had a heart for people who were poor and they were common. And so one day he decided he would dress himself as a poor man and he would leave behind for a time the wealth and splendor that he enjoyed and find the most common of men and make a friend out of him. And the man the king picked was a man who, part of his, as part of his job, prepared fires and put them in little containers and took them around the palace and placed them in rooms to keep away the cold. He was always working in soot and smoke and ashes and filth in the basement. And so making his choice, the king assumed the garments of a common man and made his way down to the basement where this man worked. He found the one who tended the fires and seated beside a large pile of ashes, stoking the fires in their containers and preparing for his rounds. His looks, obviously not that of a king, obscured his identity and so he seated himself beside the man and began to talk and over a course of time began to help him with his job. At mealtime, the man brought out some coarse bread and water, and he shared it with his new companion. Later that day, the king left, but the next day he came back, and so it continued day after day, already having a heart for the poor and the common. The relationship he had developed stirred his heart with compassion for this common man, and that compassion and love was demonstrated in the king's faithfulness to come and spend time there day after day and in the sharing of his difficult life. The king would share during their conversations from the wisdom he had and from his experience, and so this common man opened his heart and loved his new friend whom he found to be so noble and compassionate and so wise and whom he thought to be as poor as himself. Finally, after a time, the king realized that he couldn't continue without telling the man who he was, and so he decided that when he revealed his real identity, he would also ask him what gift he would like to receive because they were friends. A day came, and the king came downstairs, as was his habit, and sat down beside the man he had befriended and said, You think that I'm poor, but actually I am not poor. 
I'm the king. What is it you would like me to give to you? Obviously expecting some great request. But the man sat quietly through and simply stared with eyes of love and no doubt wonder, pondering the statement that had been made by his friend. The king said, do you understand what I've said? I, I can make you wealthy. I can give you position. I can give you houses and lands, anything you might want. I can give that to you. Yes, sovereign, I understand, he said, but what is this which you have done? You left your palace and your comforts and, and your throne every day to sit with me in this dark place, uh, to walk with me and talk with me and assist me in my menial tasks and to share with me my coarse bread and water and to care whether my heart was joyful or sorrow. Even with all your wealth, you can give me no more precious gift than that. To others, it's within your power to give great wealth, but to me, you've given yourself. There remains only one thing to ask. Please never withdraw your friendship. The Word of God provides for us everything we need for life and living. We talk about that a lot. Doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction, examples, both good and bad. And some are very deep. And, and with a moment, you can read what it says, but it may take eternity to understand all that was involved. And our passage this morning is one of those passages. Second Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. Look there with me, if you would. Here's one of those passages you can read in a moment. Perhaps, though, we'll look at it for all eternity to try to discover the richness of it. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. And it's placed here, as you can see in its context, as an illustration. Like, a, if you will, a bed of flowers in the middle of this wonderful landscape of all these very practical and instructional chapters in Second Corinthians. We saw a particular one uh, similar to that back in 2 Corinthians 5.21. You remember it. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Again, a verse you can read in a moment. But to ponder it will take all of eternity and a mind that needs to be enlightened. Uh, the rich in our society very often give to help the poor. We see that often, especially around Christmas time. You'll see it in the paper, you know, and in the news, large amounts are put in Salvation Army kettles, valuable things dropped in there inconspicuously, and then all of a sudden it's discovered. Remember a check up in Michigan for $15,000 put in one, and it made the news. So we see that often, and we'll see it reported. And, uh, or we may see you know, a large check donated to something, you know, a very large check, so all the names can be clearly seen, who's giving what to whom. But very seldom, if at all, does a rich person impoverish themselves in the process. And I think we understand that. In fact, usually their giving makes no noticeable difference to their lives. Over the past weeks, we've been able to see very clearly that love always manifests itself in giving. In fact, uh, Paul points that out, that they're giving out of their love, and he wants the Corinthians then, he uses that as a teachable moment, to give out of their love. And so Paul is teaching this Corinthian church about giving in love and expressing their love in this way, uh, giving to meet the need, and the Holy Spirit has carried him along to the greatest love and the most sacrificial gift, and that's that of Jesus. And the Macedonians are a model, and we saw this over and over again, they are a model for human giving, but Paul goes far beyond them here to the most gracious and the most sacrificial and the most generous giver of all, the type of giving that really eclipses all other giving. 
love, if love gives, then this is the greatest love because this is the greatest gift. I look back at verse 9, and so we're going to spend our time today, and it's worthy of the look, and I hope that it inspires worship in you and in humility coming before the Lord and just telling him thank, uh, thank you for all that he has done. But look at verse 9. He says, he starts this this way, he says, for you know. And that really ties us to the previous verse. Look back there, if you would, in verse 8. Paul says this, he says, I'm not speaking this as a command, so remember that giving this way is not prompted by legalism. So Paul says, I'm not giving you a command to do this as proving through the earnestness of others the sincerity of your love also. In other words, I could tell you to do something here, and he certainly had the right to do that, but instead Paul says, I just want you to give out of your love. And so it ties that, that verse is tied now to this next verse. So Paul says, instead of doing it because I command it, which I don't show your love and give, I don't need to command you to give. You have an example then that exceeds anything I could say. The giving of Jesus provides the greatest encouragement then and impetus to give than any command I could give. So that's what Paul says. He looks at verse 9, he says, for you know. In other words, you're familiar with what Jesus did. If, if you're a believer, this is one thing you have to know. This is in other words, when we see that, this is common knowledge. That's what that means when you say, for you know. For this is common knowledge to you. And what is it that Paul wants to reinforce that they know? Well, let's look at the rest of it. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, though he, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. So he pulls them out of this very practical teaching to give them an illustration that is beyond their ability really to comprehend, but there's enough that they can know that they can get the point that Paul's trying to make. And, and here what we see is a very familiar term for us, grace-prompted giving. Grace giving uh, to the churches in Macedonia, uh, continuing this gracious gift as well. Paul tells the church in Corinth, uh, same thing here, same theme. Giving was done in the fullness of time very long ago, it was a grace-prompted giving. That's precisely what Paul says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And all New Testament giving is grace-giving. And that was how Paul started the passage of verse 1. Remember, we wish to make known to you the grace of God, which is given to the churches of Macedonia. So he starts that way, and he continues right on through, because anytime there's sacrificial giving, grace is always involved there. It's not duty, it's not obligation, it's not percentage. It's, it's something that's chosen and followed through with out of a heart of love based on the resources that are available. And those are just things we saw in the first eight verses of this chapter. And this is exactly the same way, and we can apply the exact same things here. And the Holy Spirit carries Paul along to reveal the same truth concerning Jesus. Jesus gave out of a pure love, out of mercy, out of kindness, out of grace. Uh, seeing a need and meeting it, just like we saw. Uh, unmerited, cho chosen giving to undeserving, sinful people. Not out of duty, not out of obligation, without double-mindedness. He gave sacrificially out of the resources available, and his infinite gift to us has made us infinitely rich. And this is very important. Paul says that it is the actions of our Savior that illustrate free will giving so completely. That's precisely why it's here. So he says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul uses the full name and the title. And Paul does this, of course, throughout his letters. More than 65 times when Paul refers to Jesus, he uses the full name and title. And many times, like here, he uses the pronoun our. So he is ours, isn't he? You know our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He's ours, too. If you know Christ is your Savior, then you can say that with Paul. Because of his gracious work, and that's a great thing to think about, our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ. And, and he is one of the reasons, this is one of the reasons why the verse is so powerful, 
It's the full title for the incarnate God given to him because of his person and his perfect work. And just this quick reminder, he is Lord, so he is given the highest command, the highest authority. He's the sovereign because he accomplished the work he came to do. And we see that. Philippians 2.7 makes that so abundantly clear to us. In fact, it just takes in why these names are given and what they mean. So we'll just read it together. But emptied himself, speaking of Jesus, taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Here we go. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So it's going to take in, even the first part of the verse is going to take in some things we're going to look at in just a minute, what it means to be poor for Jesus' poverty. But here we see the names very clearly uh, illustrated. He is Jesus, which is the name given above every name. He came to save his people from their sins. The name literally means God saves. And he is Christ, literally the anointed one, the one chosen for the work of redemption. So Paul says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul says, you know this giving. This is common knowledge to all believers, and the highest name has been given because of this. And this is your example. And then Paul describes it in the simplest, yet most profound phrases. He says, uh, second part of verse 9, he says, that though he was rich, yet for your sake, he became poor so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. That though he was rich. So what are, what are Christ's riches? And I think it's important to kind of point this out. These are not earthly material wealth. This is, this is eternal glory. This is the eternality of Christ. Pre-existent, everlasting. The eternal nature of Christ and his deity are the most important truths in Christianity and the most important truths of the gospel. He cannot be God and not be eternal. And because eternality is part of his nature, he is God. And there was never a moment that Jesus did not exist. He did not come into existence in Bethlehem. That's where he came into human form. He has always been part of the eternal trinity. And that's been the consistent, literal understanding of the whole of Scripture. And as John Walford says in his classic series in Christology, he says, um, quote, There has been no denial of the deity of Christ, which did not also deny the infallibility of the Scriptures. In other words, it's been generally conceded that the literal interpretation of the Scripture gives a firm basis for the deity of Christ. It's all through there. So Paul says, you know this. This is common knowledge. And this old quote from Charles Hodge in his Systematic Theology um, is one of my favorites. I've read it numerous times. You may have heard it uh, before. He says this, quote, All divine names and titles are applied to him. He is called God, the mighty God, the great God, God over all, Jehovah, Lord, Lord of lords, and King of kings. All divine attributes are ascribed to him, Hodge says. He is declared to be omnipresent, omniscient, almighty, immutable, the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is set forth as the creator and upholder and ruler of the universe. All things were created by him and for him, and by him all things consist. He goes on, he says, He is the object of worship to all intelligent creatures, even the highest. All angels, all creatures between man and God are commanded to prostrate themselves before him. He is the object of all the religious sentiments of reverence, love, faith, and devotion to him. 
Men and angels are responsible for their character and conduct. He says he required that men should honor him and they honored, as they honored the Father and that they should exercise the same faith in him that they do in God. He declares that he and the Father are one, that those who had seen him had seen the Father also. He calls all men unto him, promises to forgive their sins, to send them the Holy Spirit, to give them rest and peace and to raise them up on the last day and to give them eternal life. And then this part is so good. It's a reason why I love this quote. Listen to this. God is not more and cannot promise more or do more than Christ is said to be, to promise, and to do. He has therefore been the Christian's God from the beginning in all ages and in all places. And so Paul says, this is common knowledge to you. You know Jesus, our Lord Jesus Christ. And just a few illustrations of that common knowledge Paul refers to and that Hodge referred to, of course, Micah chapter 5, verse 2. I hope this is a blessing for you when we read through these. But as for you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His going forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. The child that was born there was eternal. Prophet Isaiah's description helps us here as well. Isaiah 9, 6. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. John chapter 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, all things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Verse 10, he was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. That's Christmas from a divine perspective. We've studied that verse around Christmas time, as a matter of fact. John 17, 5, Jesus, obviously aware of his own eternality, he says, Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Jesus knew who he was. So Paul says, For you know. This is common knowledge to you, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, and you know who this is, that though he was rich, so you think about what, what, what are Christ's riches, so Jesus then is rich, all these other things being true, just as the eternal God is rich. Everything belongs to God, the universe, all of its vastness. He's the second person in the Trinity, in every sense equal with every other. So the wealth of our Lord Jesus Christ is above our ability to comprehend it is infinite like he is infinite. So when Paul says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich yet for your sakes, that's yours and my sakes, certainly not for his, he became poor. Many of those considered church fathers have written in the past, and you've maybe read some of these, equated Christ becoming poor with economic poverty. And, and they encourage followers of Christ to take vows of poverty because of that. And sometimes you'll see commentary indicating that Jesus had nowhere to lay his head, and so they want us to infer from that statement that God is more pleased with our emulation of Christ's worldly poverty. But the monetary economic status of Jesus is not primarily in view here, any more than it was with Jesus' riches. Certainly he gave up temporary heavenly riches, but to make monetary economic status here the main thing really misfocuses the intent of the passage where all the way through Paul is talking about the heart of giving. And we've seen that normal, the normal action of believers giving must embrace sacrifice, but not 
that the stripping away of all material things is greater spirituality. We've seen that over and over again. Just because you give more and more and you strip away more and more, that doesn't make you more spiritual because it's about the heart of giving. You can give a lot and not be rich in single-mindedness. And we saw that over and over again. You can give a lot and not be rich in grace. Everything we've seen, everything we have has been given to us by the Lord. So, so to have them can't be sinful. And we went over that uh, months ago. And salvation does not come through the forfeiture of material comforts. And just to drive the point home, realize in 2 Corinthians 8, 9, that it's not talking about Jesus' monetary position in the world. Otherwise, we'd have to apply that same interpretation to the second half of the verse. And we know that we can't because Jesus didn't come to make us materially rich by becoming materially poor. See, So it can't be that. So yes, Matthew 18, 19 says, or 8, 19 says, Then the scribe came to him, Teacher, I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus says to him, The foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. So Jesus was an itinerant teacher, and he did go from place to place. But no doubt he has had a home in Nazareth where he grew up, and he wasn't, when he wasn't there, he was staying with friends. And we see in Luke chapter 8, soon afterwards as he's walking around, he began going around from one city and village to another, proclaiming and preaching the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him, and also some women who'd been healed of evil spirits and sickness. Mary, who was called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, his wife, the wife of Chusa, and Herod's steward, and Susanna, and many others who were contributing to, uh, to their support out of their private it means so he hasn't stripped everything away we know he stayed from time to time at the home of Lazarus we see that constantly in the scriptures he wasn't begging on the street he, he had money to pay taxes to get the food and supplies he needed and remember they even had someone in charge of the what of the money bag remember so so and John 12 5 seemed to indicate they had enough to help the poor because uh the woman came and broke the, the vial of costly perfume on him, remember, anointing him for his death. And so he says, why didn't we, say, why didn't we sell it and give it to the poor? So obviously they'd done that before. So there was a normal interchange there. Second Corinthians 6.10, Paul uses the same language about himself. He says, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, as poor, yet making many rich, as having nothing, yet possessing all things. So Paul understands that. He understand, they understand this idea so the emphasis of the verse in Jesus becoming poor is that, mark this, he laid aside his rights and privileges. And now that you know, you have a little snapshot as we look through the Old Testament, he laid aside his rights and privileges, and you understand some of those privileges, and that he is eternal God, as God is eternal. Jesus becoming a man, the incarnation, that's riches for poverty. It is by that poverty that we may become rich. See, there was a price paid for the blessings we enjoy in Christ. Included in that price was, mark this, the cost of the incarnation of the pre-existing Son into a fallen world. And we know from other passages the cost of the incarnation, great though it was, carried with it so much more. There was also the cost of rejection and ridicule and persecution and betrayal and suffering, all culminating in the agony of Gethsemane and the cross. These things come together to make up this full cost of making himself poor. That's what we're talking about when we talk about the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the sacrifice that we're talking about. Just kind of sum up some of the passages. Made a little lower than the angels, Hebrews 2.7. He had to be born of the seed of David according to the flesh, Romans 1.3. Made in the likeness of sinful flesh, Romans 8.3. No regal form, no splendor, no beauty, Isaiah 53.2. We read that. Every time we celebrate communion, 
born of a woman, Galatians 4.4, had to come to the cross, Colossians 1.20, the giver of life had to die, Philippians 1.8. Luke chapter 18, verse 32, for he would be handed over to the Gentiles and would be mocked and mistreated and spit upon. This is the pre-existing one, one who created everything there is, one who's worthy of all worship. He's going to be mocked and mistreated and spit upon, and after they had scourged him, they'll kill him, and on the third day he will rise again. Now mark this next passage. This is very interesting. But the disciples understood none of these things, and the meaning of this statement was hidden from them, and they did not comprehend the things that were said. They didn't comprehend who he was at that point. They didn't understand what it was to become poor. They didn't comprehend any of that giving up his riches for poverty so we could become rich, see. And sometimes, beloved, I don't think we do any better. We forget and we transfer this idea of poverty as something economical because we think that being a man or a woman is a pretty cool thing and we're proud of who we are. And I think that's another reason why Paul kind of stops off here and says, let's really talk about what this kind of grace-prompted giving looks like. Because we've forgotten that we are truly impoverished. So Paul writes to the Macedonian church of Philippi in Philippians chapter 2, verse 6, and he says, and he reminds them of this riches for poverty found in, in Jesus. He says, Who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as a thing to be grasped. In other words, he was in eternity with perfect equality with God but he didn't hold on to it. But emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men, being found in the appearance of man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That, that is riches for poverty. And although he is the eternal God, as rich as God is rich in deity and power and sovereignty over all the powers of the universe, he subjected himself to those powers and willingly tasted the full dose of all of its corruption. He became poor by being humbled in human flesh. That's what the Holy Spirit intends for us to understand in verse 9. And that's what Luke records of Jesus in Luke twenty-two nineteen. 19. He's conveying this very thing. And when he'd taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them saying, Mark this, this is my body, which is what? Given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In other words, when you take the bread, remember I exchanged all that was mine in heaven and eternity to be incarnate in a body and come and give my body for you. So Paul says, for you know, this is common knowledge, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you through his poverty might become rich. So what kind of riches are our riches? We understand what kind of riches were Christ's riches. We understand what kind of poverty now was Christ's. Now what riches are our riches? Did he come to make us materially rich? No, it can't mean that. Eternally rich, yes. Spiritually rich, yes. He came to make us rich with what riches? Well, the same kind of riches he possessed and possesses. And I'd like you to turn, if you would, to Ephesians chapter 1, will you? Verse 3. There's a couple, 
couple passages I want you to read through because now that you've got your mind around why Paul put the illustration in there, this is the example of grace-prompted giving. It appears this explanation really is the main point. What does it mean to be rich? What kind of riches are our riches? Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Go all the way through verse 20. Paul's writing to this church in Ephesus. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. What is that? That's all the things we understand about Christ's position. All the inheritance that we understand that comes from the Lord. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Things we can't even imagine. In fact, the greater portion of the riches that are ours through Christ is not something we can put our mind around. Verse 4, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to the adoption of sons through Jesus Christ to himself. We get to be in the family according to the kind intention of his will. That's because he wanted to do it. To the praise of the glory of his grace. That's the kind of giving that is always, this type of generous giving is always grace-prompted which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. So we saw an example of it in Christ. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, that's riches, according to the riches of his grace in him, again. In verse 11, look there. Also we have obtained, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. These things are already true of you, beloved. You've obtained an inheritance that sets waiting for you. To that end, he who, we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. To him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory. You've been given a down payment called the Holy Spirit. That's the guarantee that everything Christ has promised you and all that the riches he's promised through his death and resurrection are going to belong to you. Now look at verse 18. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, that your eyes will be opened and be able to see, so that you will know what is the hope of his calling. Why are you here, beloved? Paul says, I want you to know the hope of your calling. What is it? What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? And what is the surpassing greatness of his power towards us who believe? These are in accordance with the workings of his strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ and then raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. These are our riches because of the incarnation, the suffering, and humiliation. Jesus' poverty made you rich in these things. Look forward to chapter 2, verse 4. Just a few verses forward. But God being rich in mercy because of his great love which he loved us even when we were dead in our transgressions made us alive together with Christ by grace you've been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ. That's your actual position, beloved. You work through this world as a, an alien and a stranger but your actual position is what? Seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ. So that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ. The heart of giving in these verses helps remind us how poor we really were. Because we're always kind of 
uh, keen on the fact that we think we're pretty cool and we're human and all of that kind of stuff, but we were in poverty. And Christ came and became poor so that we become truly rich. And through Jesus' poverty, beloved, we are rich in salvation and rich in forgiveness and rich in joy and peace and life and glory and honor. See? 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 4. Peter says there's an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. The riches that are alluded to in Luke chapter 16, verse 11 here is certainly not money. Remember, we looked at this verse uh, a few weeks ago. Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the use of unrighteous wealth, who will entrust true riches to you? True riches, see. Power in ministry, treasure in heaven, ministry to people, spiritual gifts. That's what true riches look like. That's the riches that Christ promises to those who believe. He became poor, emptied himself of all of his rights and privileges, became obedient to death on the cross. That's his poverty. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 21 let no man boast in men, for all things belong to you, whether Saul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come. All things belong to you. That's true riches, isn't it? That's the blessing of Christ emptying himself, divesting himself of his own riches temporarily to take on the form of a man, to taste our corruption so that we might be rich. The world, life, death, things present, things to come. This is you. Your identity now is here. And you belong to Christ and Christ belongs to God. Everything we have that can bless us, we've been given. Our eternal home and all of its glory, the new Jerusalem is ours. His poverty became, uh, came when he became a man. Our riches came by his willingly emptying him of himself. That we, through his death and his resurrection, might live eternally with him and inherit all the things that he inherits. See. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. With that statement, the Holy Spirit has Paul take a moment and put on display the ultimate example of selfless, generous, sacrificial giving, which we've seen so far and will continue to see are the points of these two chapters. But with this beautiful illustration, I think Paul wants the church to get their eyes off themselves and whatever we may or may not be doing and whatever excuses we may or may not be giving for following the example that he's set here and place the focus where all grace-based ministry finds its power and its example, that's the example of Christ. And there isn't any escape from that, beloved, not that we would want to. And after reading verse 9, we can be more sensitive to the fact that we are discussing in very simple terms about giving away our money. That's precisely what the two, pa the two chapters are talking about. And so Paul puts this here, so it is appropriate then to use it as an illustration of what it really means to give out of love. And the scripture desires for us to do just that, honestly, generously, sacrificially, faithfully, 
with the right heart attitude. And doing that, beloved, will place us in a position where we can receive God's blessing of grace upon grace because we're obedient to him and we exercise our faith and our trust in him and we see what he tells us to do. It's very simple, isn't it? Respond as the scripture prompts. We go the direction the Lord wants us to go and he's pleased. Let's bow and be dismissed in prayer. Father, we thank you today for an opportunity to be together. Thank you for an opportunity to expand a little bit and to give room for you to bring uh, ones in that you desire for us to have. Lord, thank you for the many who are serving right now and making it possible. We're grateful for uh, their sacrifice and coming early and, and making sure that people can worship and serve. And so, Father, I pray you continue to uh, give us workers for the harvest and that we might uh, be faithful and do the things you have empowered us to do. And giving as we see in Ephesians, whatever joint supplies that we may uh, have what we need to have in order to do what you want us to do. Lord, as we look at this passage, though, our hearts are stirred again, of course. Uh, our souls are ministered to, which is what your word is all about. As we look at this example of Jesus, we do know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. We've experienced it if we've come to know him as our Savior. And Lord, if, we, if someone sits here and they don't know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, and they've not been made rich by his poverty, Father, today is the day of salvation might today profess Jesus Christ as Lord. Believe in their heart that God has raised him from the dead. Coming to faith in the one who can save, the one who's always been God, who has all the riches that God has, who's exchanged all of that to make us rich. May today be that day that you put place your hope and your faith in Jesus, confessing your sins, repenting of them, and asking for forgiveness, which he gracefully gives. So, Father, as we think about this and we think about where Paul put it, right in the middle of some very practical verses concerning the giving away of what we have and what that's supposed to look like and how we're to follow the model that's seen here, we know that it's appropriate. And that, of course, Christ is our example in grace and bearing burdens and all those other things. Well, it should be appropriate here that as the Scripture talks about money more than it talks about heaven and hell combined, that the seriousness of the issue and the depth of the grace and the love that need to be part of how we give away what you've given us are modeled by Christ. We thank you for that model. We thank you for the conviction that it brings. We thank you for the joy also to know that he exchanged the riches of heaven and his position to be made into a man in the likeness of men and to suffer all of our corruption and to be raised and be given a name above every name. And we praise you for that, Father. And we thank you that this example then becomes the example of what grace-prompted giving looks like in us. And we give you praise today, and we thank you for it, and all God's people said, amen.